0: From the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is the Cloudcast with Aaron Dell and Brian Gracely, presented by a Cloud Guru, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome back to the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. You know, one of the most common questions that we get from from listeners and from people that we talk to, and we're out at events and stuff, is, um, you know, why don't you guys talk about databases more? You know, databases are sort of part of everybody's applications. Um, people are trying to figure out how do databases work in the cloud. How do we get data into the cloud? Um, you know, do they, did these cloud databases. Are they are they for legacy applications? Are they only for new applications? You know, just basically can you guys spend some more time on that? So uh we're trying to listen to you guys, we're trying to to, to take that feedback to heart. And so today, very, very excited uh to have with us today Steve Abram, who is Principal Solutions Architect from Amazon Web Services and, and really a specialist in Amazon's database space. So Steve, welcome to the show. Glad to have you on. Hey Brian, thanks for having me on today. Yeah. So before we jump into into uh, AWS's databases and, and the things people are doing with them, why don't you give us some of your background? Um, you know, before AWS, and then the things you're working on a, at AWS.
1: Sure. Yeah, I, I started off as a software engineer in the uh, the mid to late '90s, and moved from there into uh, being the lead uh, SQL Server DBA for uh, T-Mobile for a number of years Uh, i left that and um, went into independent consulting and created a a small software development company uh, out of tampa florida and then uh, moved from there actually uh, almost four years ago now uh, to aws uh, spent some time out in seattle and then uh, in 2016 i moved out to atlanta so i'm currently based in atlanta
0: georgia Okay, cool. And your focus is very much around yeah. uh, the database platforms, and I think uh, specifically around Aurora, correct? Yes,
2: that's correct. I, I started out at AWS as a what we call a generalist solutions architect, where I covered the entire platform. And last year, decided to uh, really dive deep into the database technologies. And yeah, I work very closely with the Aurora team. Excellent.
0: Excellent. Well, look, let's let's start by sort of talking, you know, given given your background, having, you know, worked on SQL databases, not in the cloud, and, um, you know, and then obviously, you know, with, with cloud databases, let, let's talk kind of, let, let's start from the beginning. What's What are we seeing, um, you know, in the marketplace, sort of the differences that, that the way that people treat new databases, so something maybe they create new in the cloud, um, versus how they deal with, with existing databases. So kind of walk us through, if you were Talking to a company, um, you know, what what are the different kind of considerations they have to make for? I have some existing databases that, you know, SQL databases, for example, that I want to uh, maybe take advantage of cloud technologies versus something new. What are the what are the trade offs and considerations and stuff planning they have to think about?
2: Sure, yeah. So you know, I've worked with a lot of customers at all sorts of different phases of adoption of the cloud. Uh, Customers that start off that are initially entirely on premise and some that are born
1: you know, native in the cloud and everywhere in between. And so what we see a lot of is that customers, you know, they want to make a move to the cloud and they want to take advantage of the scalability and the flexibility that the cloud offers. And so a lot of times what we see is that you know, they'll start with small workloads, maybe development workloads. They kind of want to test it out, get their feet wet. And so they'll, they'll start off by doing that. And then, and so they usually, what we see a lot of times, if they're brand new to the cloud, is they will they'll, they'll launch their databases on EC2, right? And EC2 is, of course, our, you know, uh, it's our uh, compute cloud. It, it allows you to run really anything. They're VMs in, in the cloud, right? And so that gives, you know, our customers the flexibility to run any type of workload that they like. And then what we see is after they get sort of used to the idea of running in, uh, you know, in EC2, then they might take advantage of some of our, you know, RDS, which is a relational database service, which is more of a managed offering. Right. Right. And so. So you know we, we see, like I said, initially those initial you know dev workloads, and then once they gain some familiarity and comfort with working in the cloud, then we see some you know smaller production workloads, and then eventually it will ramp up into full blown a, a lot of
0: times all in into the cloud okay and, and as you're, as you're talking to those companies, do you find that you know more of their interest these days is let's let's start um let's sort of you know build new databases in the cloud whether again like you said leveraging you know kind of they run at ec2 or or an rds service or something or do you see them is there is there more interest in i want to migrate an existing database i just want to take advantage of um you know the, the the elasticity the on-demand capabilities whatever that might be of the cloud is there more interest in in new versus old or is it still a, a pretty good mix between the two
1: So it's a good mix. But what I think really differentiates are, you know, sort of, I guess, startups versus this uh, is maybe larger enterprise or more seasoned companies. So obviously, if you're if you're a, a larger, more seasoned company, you already have an existing uh, large footprint on premise. Right. And so in in those scenarios, it's more of a migration story with startups. We see a, a lot of companies and especially, you know, it's one of the great things about the cloud in general is if you're a startup and you, you don't have, you know, the resources to you know buy things like sands
2: right. or you know expensive hardware it's it's easier to start your business you know with that sort of elasticity and use what you need as you need it sure, sure. right
0: yeah, makes total sense what, yeah now for, for those customers that that want to do a migration so you're a you're you're an enterprise company maybe you're an enterprise company out of atlanta right in your backyard or something what what type of tools are available for them to to help them migrate a database into the cloud
1: yeah so with that it there are a couple of options I mean you know first, you know what we see a lot of customers do is they are they're using an engine on premise that they're already familiar with mm-hmm. and so you know step one is just I want to get into the cloud right They're not really looking to change engines at that point. they just have say a SQL server database, for example, that they want to move from on premise into the cloud. And so in those scenarios, we usually recommend that they leverage the native tools of whatever engine that is. Uh, Those native tools, you know, because you can leverage those and it's, it's easiest to move, you know, from the same engine to the same engine. A lot of times we see customers use Direct Connect which is, you know, it's a circuit where you can have a dedicated pipe between your data center and AWS and so you've got dedicated bandwidth uh so that it you have you can really essentially extend your on-premise network into AWS and so that allows you to really look at it as an extension of your data center and then it's as simple as just doing, you know, a migration from essentially logically speaking one data center into another. Uh, for very large databases, maybe data warehouses, uh, we have Snowball, uh, which is a device that, uh, you know, we ship directly to you, and then you can plug it into your network and then it becomes a device on your network where you can move you know, terabytes of data onto that and then ship it overnight uh, back to AWS and we load it into S3 for you so that you can load it into your database. And so if you're if you're doing a, a massive migration like that or even Snowmobile which in, in some of the more extreme cases is an actual semi that you know pulls up to your data center and allows you to load lots of data onto it and then load that into AWS, it's a lot faster than trying to push it across the wire. Okay. Um, we have, and, and even for RDS, for example, we have the ability to take, you know, native SQL Server backups, for example, put them into S3 and then do a restore directly into SQL Server RDS or a backup uh, the other way if you want to come out. Okay. Now, if we're looking at heterogeneous type of migrations, and we see a lot of customers do this because, you know, we have a lot of customers you know they they love you know initially working with the commercial engines because they've they've got great features right mm-hmm. but they also can sometimes be uh cost prohibitive right the licensing sometimes can you know get a little bit out of control and you know with open source engines available and even with things like Amazon Aurora that you know incorporates a lot of these enterprise features and some of these uh, you know features you would find in commercial uh, software a lot of customers are looking to make the migration from you know a commercial engine into one of these open source engines and for that uh, the, the, the the tool set that we generally see and generally recommend is a combination of what we call the schema conversion tool mm-hmm. and then the database migration service, or DMS. Okay. And so what that what that looks like is with the schema conversion tool, let's say that you have an on-premise Oracle or SQL Server database, for example – and you wanted to migrate it to you know postgres or mysql or aurora which is either postgres or mysql as well then the schema conversion tool is a downloadable executable that you can run locally and you can, it will analyze your source database and then it will generate for you first a report of you know what what needs to be changed and you know some of it can be done automatically and the schema conversion tool will do that for you automatically it'll generate sql scripts for you you, or if you'd rather, it will apply it directly to the target. And then for the things that it cannot, you know, directly change, it'll give you a report and outline, you know, what needs to be done and what the level of effort is that's involved in that. So we see a lot of customers when they're moving from a commercial engine and, for example, looking at Aurora, that they will, you know, they want to say, well, should I look at, you know, the MySQL engine or the Postgres engine? And so, you know, we'll have them run that and it'll give them an idea of what the level is. Of effort is for both, okay. and then once once they are able to sort through the schema, then the database migration service is it's a replication service really that allows you to copy the data from your source to the target okay. uh, across across engines.
0: Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So so if, if I'm sort of you're reading this back, it's um, you know today if you are if you're comfortable with the databases you have, um, you know there's there's a couple of ways to basically say. Uh, how do I move the data? And that could be as simple as, um, you know, having, you know, so using the native tools from say Microsoft SQL, Oracle, you know, Oracle databases, whatever um, you can enhance that by saying, we can give you way more sort of dedicated bandwidth using direct connect. um, Or if, if it's too much data, we can basically send out devices, whether they're smaller devices or big devices to, to sort of take copies of your, of your data via disc. So, uh, there, there's ways to deal with that, and then the migration tools are really there if you say, "Hey, you know, we, we'd like to have somewhat similar functionality, but you know, with a different with a different price point, with a with you know, sort of less, uh, maybe more open source involvement than commercial involvement." And that's where the migration tools really come into play. Right. Okay. Yep. Exactly. And you talked. I mean, you talked a little bit. Obviously, we, we can't get into all the details here. You talked about the migration tools, kind of. Um, you know helping you figure out how to how to do the migration um, whether that's you know automatically or giving you guidance does it then go into some depth in terms of I mean so a lot of the databases will have sort of embedded functions within the database Um, does it does it start to have that capability where it can uh, you know make the make translations between not just the schema but but those embedded functions within a database
1: Yes, absolutely. And that's, I think that's a lot of the value that's, you know, part of the schema conversion tool is that, you know, for the, you know, stored procedures and functions, um, you know, to the best of its ability, it will translate those from one engine into the other. Okay,
0: mm-hmm. cool. So you've been a database, you know, you've been a DBA in the past, um, you know, we're, we're seeing with these managed database services, whether it's an RDS or, or Aurora, or even just you know, people working in the cloud. As you talk to DBAs, uh, you know, as customers, people in the field, like, how is their world evolving uh, in, in dealing with the cloud, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, good or them, them feeling like, wait, maybe I'm not doing as much as I used to. Like, what's the sense from DBAs of, of what their role now looks like uh, dealing with cloud databases?
2: Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, back when I was a DBA, uh, you know, you know, many years ago, everything was very manual, Mm -hmm. everything from provisioning servers to managing backups to analyzing, uh, error logs, things like that. And so it required a lot of what we, you know, frequently call undifferentiated heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, moving to the cloud, um, you know, will eliminate a lot of that type of work. But the type of work that still remains and what I would argue is even more critical to the business is things like performance tuning around queries, for example, Uh, working with application teams and being able to, you know, improve performance at the application level and being able to really focus on driving value for, you know, for the business, in you know, in, in creating, you know, New features and new, you know, other other things that you know add to the the business value. The other stuff is still important. For example, backups obviously are critical, but but that's something that is it's more of a you know a business continuity issue, right? You need to have that you know to make sure that your business stays in business. Uh, but you you it doesn't add additional value. And so the role I think of the DBA as it shifts is to you know be able to. You know not have to do all of the undifferentiated heavy lifting be able to add more to you know the the value proposition and the growth right of the business
0: okay now it makes makes sense you know I, i've been I've been mm-hmm. watching the been watching the keynotes uh, from reinvent the last couple of years um, you know I think it was a couple of years ago that that Aurora got announced and and the way I was, I was sort of logically following it was was kind of the way that you explained it right I, I could start off with uh, running a, a database basically myself on on EC2, um, uh, you know maybe it's a SQL database, whatever it might be. Um, at some point, maybe I say that, that seems like a lot of work. I can I can use one of the native RDS SQL services, and then Aurora came along, and and Aurora it, to me it jumped out and it sort of said like, uh, we will help you. We'll make it much simpler for you to manage things like like I/O to storage. Um, you don't have to really think about that too much. Um, we'll sort of manage. Uh, you know, kind of the the expansion of how much space you need, or or that, um, and then it sort of evolved to we will do those those like we'll replicate the database across multiple regions, so you don't have to really understand you know how to do you know multi site stuff, and and then this last year, uh, you know Andy Jassy was sort of talking about Aurora in the context of like serverless databases. Um, can can you give us a sense just kind of like how has as Aurora, which is really the the flagst- flagship you know, database now for, for SQL, like how's that evolved and, and, and what are the, you know, what are the ways you're trying to make that simpler, I guess, if if I'm understanding it correctly?
2: Yeah, no, I think, I think you're right on, like you said, EC2, it gives you, you know, sort of the baseline to start RDS. We take a lot of that in heavy lifting and Aurora is actually, you know, technically part of RDS. And so you get all the value of RDS Plus these additional features, and I think that you know the, the most critical piece of Aurora that maybe is not fully understood, you know, by a lot of customers is how the storage engine works, and, and the storage engine itself is what allows us to create so many of these additional features. Um, you know, just in real high level, you said you know we replicate the data across these six different storage nodes. You know, across what's important is what, what that essentially gives us is it gives us, logically speaking, what looks like a regional SAN, okay. right? And so that allows us to do things like, for example, last year we allow, we you know, so for example, when you launch a, an Aurora reader, normally if you were to use MySQL and you wanted to create a reader, you would need to, you know, dump the data, copy it over, load the data, and then catch up using bin log replication. With Aurora, it doesn't work like that at all instead when you create an aurora reader we light up a new instance and that instance just attaches directly to the same logical storage volume that the master has been writing to the entire time that means that we don't have to do that dump copy load and then catch up with bin log instead we can bring a reader on in a matter of just a couple of minutes okay. and so one of the things that allows us to do is you know When you look at an Aurora cluster, you know, there's a cluster endpoint, which is always pointing at the master and is read-write. And then we also have a reader endpoint, which does a DNS round-robin sort of load balancing across your pool of readers. And so what we added late last year was the ability to auto-scale those. And so that's not really feasible or practical. In a traditional MySQL type of an environment, because it takes so long to bring up those readers, but with Aurora, you can spin them up and spin them down pretty rapidly. Um, and then, in addition to that, we're also able to deliver, you know, on a, on a very, very, you know, regular basis, ten to twenty millisecond latency between that master and the reader. Okay. Okay. Right, yeah. and so because we're again we're reading off of the same storage volume, but uh, back to you know you I think your original question you're talking a little bit about serverless, and uh, you know serverless I think is a very exciting technology, that you know it allows customers to let's say that you have um, a development team, and that development team is, you know, working on developing an application. And so if you have an Aurora instance, or really any database instance for that matter, and it's it has your data and you're working on it, and then your developers go home at the end of the day, and nobody's accessing it. But most of the time, that instance will remain on and running for all of those hours that everyone's sleeping and in incurring fees, right? Mm-hmm. So if Aurora a serverless, um, you, know, you can specify scaling options, right? And so when your developers go home, it can essentially shut down your instance. And when you come back in in the morning, in about three to five seconds from the first contact to that serverless endpoint, it's back online and running. Gotcha. And in the way that we're doing this really is is that we have a managed proxy that sits in between, right? And so normally your application would talk directly to an Aurora instance, what is essentially, you know, under the covers an EC2 mm-hmm. instance. And so if you needed to scale an Aurora cluster, um, you know, it would require, you know, you know, resizing that instance and breaking the TCP connection from your application to that Aurora instance while that resize is happening. Or maybe you would fail over if you're in a multi-AZ configuration. With with serverless, what happens is, is your application is talking directly to that proxy endpoint. And so if there's a scaling operation that needs to happen, if you're scaling up or you're scaling down, what we'll do is we will Park your connections, pause them, so to speak. And then on the other side of the proxy, we'll disconnect that instance and then plug in a new instance. It's either larger or smaller, for example, and then resume the flow of traffic to that instance. Okay. And so it doesn't break that TCP connection. And what it looks like from an application perspective is about a one to two second pause while that happens. Gotcha. And so I, I think that, that that gives you yeah it gives you the ability to scale you know vertically uh very easily with aurora serverless and the other thing too is that in the event of a node failure, let's say for example something happens to that instance, we can swap that out on the back end too, and you don't need to think about changing dNS endpoints or anything else like that it just automatically recovers
0: gotcha gotcha okay that makes that makes a lot of sense Uh, so obviously it sounds like the you know the storage engine the the proxy capabilities are, are are you know incredibly crucial to kind of what what goes on with aurora i mean is it is the technology such that it's specifically around aurora or is that something maybe in the future that you you guys could see adapting to to working with some of the other sql engines um you know for because maybe customer demand just to to stay with the engine they're used to
2: uh, well, so the storage engine itself, I mean, you know, as you know, we launched with the MySQL compatible edition a few years ago. And then uh, late last year, you know, we launched with the Postgres compatible. Okay. And, you know, we see a lot of customers moving toward more of that open source, um, you know, sort of direction. Okay. So, you know, I, I think that the focus is pri- primarily on, you know, moving, you know, open source. But, at, you know, as far as additional engines, I mean, what I'll say about our roadmap, you know, last year we had, I think it was like 1,430 new features or services mm-hmm. launched across AWS in general. And 90 to 95 percent of that roadmap is directly driven from, you know, what we call PFRs or product feature requests from our customers. So I I routinely when I'm talking with customers, they will say, you know, we really like this this service. You know, we like Aurora, for example, but we would like it to be able to do
1: this. Right. Or maybe, you know, we'd like, you know, we like it in the MySQL edition, but we'd really love it in a Postgres compatible edition and so we take that back and that's what what drives that roadmap and those 1430 you know features or services that you know we released last year okay.
0: well very cool so, well, listen i, I want to I ask one more question and and this is obviously one that you know could go on for a long time but i kind of want to hit on some highlights of it um, you know obviously the, the the concept of of microservices gets talked about by a lot of different people and or, and, and sometimes it's, it's in the same vein of, of databases, right? You're going to have companies, maybe startups, that are saying, we're going to build our applications from, from, from scratch. Uh, we're going to start with sort of a, a microservice approach. Um, and you've got other companies who, who have existing applications that, that they try and break up um, from a monolith into microservices. And, and a lot of times I'll, I'll hear people say, well, <clears throat> you know, breaking up the application is, is sometimes the easier part, uh, you know, relatively easier. Um, and then they go, you know, trying to break up a monolithic database, an existing database, to be more kind of microservices friendly, if you will, is is, is more difficult. Have you, you know, in, in talking to people or in looking at the technologies that you offer, have you found, um, you know, some practical guidance in terms of how do you kind of match a database being being maybe broken up to be more microservices friendly, or is it is it still just, you know, you need SQL databases the way they are or whatever whatever's out there?
1: Yeah, we see this all the time. And, and what it commonly looks like, you know, coming in is it, it may not be, you know, obviously a microservices discussion up front. But what it looks like is, you know, the relational database in general, has become something of a Swiss Army knife okay. um, in you know you know in the technology world, right? And so what we see is that we see the relational database used for OLTP workloads. We see it used for data warehousing workloads. We see it used for what are essentially key value lookups or you know something that would fit more into a NoSQL workload. Mm-hmm. Really any type of workload. And and we see, you know, we'll see one large monolithic database with all of these different types of workloads packed into that. Okay. And so what we, what we do is, you know, with one of the great things about the cloud is that, you know, you can, you can provision and create very quickly, you know, new databases of varying sizes. I mean, you know, we're looking, you know, if you're looking at, you know, anything from, if it's, if it's something that it's a managed service like DynamoDB, for example, you know, obviously a great, you know, solution for NoSQL where you can simply provision read and write capacity units and scale that as you need it. Or if you're looking at something that's more like RDS or EC2, I mean, you can go as small as a T2 micro, as high as the, you know, the the X1s, for example. Mm -hmm. And so when, when we look at that giant monolithic database, we start, you know, to ask the questions about, you know, what are the segments of this database? And, and inevitably, customers will say, well, you know, this handful of tables, they're really just key value lookups. And so then we can kind of carve that off and move that into, say, a DynamoDB, for example. And then, you know, we can also carve off, you know, the reporting functionality out into perhaps a Redshift. You know, and so we, the first step is to get those, those separated out into the right database platforms themselves. And then the microservices too, you know, they they a lot of times will revolve around that. You know, you'll find out that those NoSQL tables are really, you know, tied to a specific business function, right? They really are, you know, related to each other, and they're not necessarily related to, you know, directly the other things in the database. That's why there aren't foreign keys to them, perhaps. Uh, you know, it, they they are something that can be carved off and set off into what can eventually become its own microservice. And so in order to enable our customers to do all of that migration and movement and things like that, you know, one of the key tools that we leverage there of course is the database migration service. And you know, we've talked about that earlier in this conversation about how we can use that to migrate, but we also see that used very frequently to do data replication in general. So, you know, you can replicate, you know, say from uh, if you want to, if you have an OLTP database, right, and you have data coming in, you can have DMS running constantly and replicating that data out of there into, we'll say, S3 as part of your data lake, or maybe you want to replicate it into, you know, Redshift or some other data store for reporting purposes, or even, you know, just a. Subset of those tables into a different, you know, a dedicated reporting database is a very common example.
0: Okay, so you're seeing people that, that so, sort of take the approach. I mean, the, the, the thing with monoliths when you're breaking them up is you're you're not just saying, well, let me just chunk this up into code, you're kind of saying, you know, w- where is a business function within there? Uh, you know, how do I separate that because maybe I want to be able to make changes to it more frequently? You're seeing a similar type of thing happen in the database where out of what might be a large database monolithic database you can look at certain areas of it and say this is really uh associated with the tasks that go with say like billing this might go with reporting this might go with something else and and you're seeing companies who are are beginning to say let me let me break that off into maybe more specific types of databases or services that that might be more useful or allow more flexibility to make changes as needed
1: Absolutely, because I mean you know when you when you look back if you you know if you look back ten fifteen twenty years ago when a lot of these systems, especially in the larger enterprise companies were built you know if you want a database you have to first order that hardware and then you have to buy a license or licenses for some software you know database engine software and install it that, that takes a lot of time a lot of cost a lot of effort and so that's how everything ended up getting sort of, you know, compiled into that one large monolithic database. Gotcha. But with the ability now to to just so quickly spin up these, these new resources in a matter of minutes, it, it it enables, it empowers, you know, customers to break up that monolith and to use, you know, the right tools and the right size and, you know, be able to, you know, Break up that monolith.
0: Yeah, interesting. Very, very interesting. Well, listen, Steve, I'm going to wrap it up with that. Um, if if folks want to reach out to you and kind of you know pick your brain on on database topics, is there a a good place for them to go or a good way to reach out to you? Uh, you know, or, or a good place out on the website to kind of go go get smarter about this stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, website-wise, I would just, I would check out, we have Quick Start Tutorials on AWS. It's a great place to look. Uh, if you want to reach me specifically, I mean, my email address is abrsteve at amazon.com, um, and I'd be happy to answer any questions he has.
0: Okay. Very cool. Well, listen, uh, yeah. folks, on, on behalf of, uh, Steve and Aaron, uh, thank you so much for the conversation today. And, and folks, you know, the other thing is, um, you know, the, the, the good folks at A Cloud Guru don't do a ton of, uh, of training around, around AWS services, database services being some of those. So if you want to take advantage of, of the things they're doing, we always offer discounts out in the, in the show notes that you'll see for, for the A Cloud Guru services as well. So take advantage of those. Uh, for Aaron and for Steve, Steve, thanks for the time today. Thanks for the conversation. And, uh, folks, we will talk to you next week.
1: Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net
0: to find more podcasts, show notes, and everything social media. And visit acloud.guru for all your cloud training needs.